Holy Father, we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us now. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that we are not left without direction. We're not left without instruction. And that you not only have given us yourself in the person of Jesus Christ, but you've given us your mind. You've given us your will. You've given us your way to live by the power of your spirit through the truth of your word. I pray, Lord, now you would speak that through me, that we would receive it, and that we would become filled with your spirit, that your word would dwell richly in us, that we would learn to serve Christ and him alone, and in doing so, we would learn to be in subjection to each other. In his name we ask, amen. So now it's down to me, and... Um, We've come to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9, specifically verse 9. And um, I think I got assigned this specific passage just because I am an employer. And um, that doesn't necessarily qualify you to teach on this, but... Um, I'm not going to confess all my sins before you as an employer, but I can tell you this study for me has been rich and rewarding and convicting. And uh, as you can see, the title is Submission of Masters, or you could say this is part two of Submission to Christ in the Workplace. You've heard the expression, we can't see the forest for the trees. What does that mean? Well, that means that we often get into the detail so badly that we don't see the big picture, right? Well, because we've been in Ephesians for a long time, I thought it best if we back up this morning, zoom out to 30,000 feet, get a view of Ephesians in a big picture, and specifically the overall general context of these verses we're looking at this morning. Um, and that's just to give you an overview of the way I'm going this morning. That's what I intend to do is I intend to start at 30,000 feet, zoom down to street level, and then move back up to 30,000 feet. So we're going to get the big picture, go to specifics, and then move back to broad and general life application. Big to small, and then back to big. We know we can't know how to live or what to do unless we have the facts and the teaching behind it first. You know, a lot of people criticize doctrine. They say, tell us what to do, how to live. Well, we can't understand what to do or how to live until we know what the doctrine is behind it. Paul purposefully arranges all of his letters, the 13 letters he wrote in that manner, where he begins with doctrine or teaching, and then he moves to a practical or application section. So Paul always begins with theological, and then he moves to practical. Uh, as we all know, Romans, the heaviest doctrine in all scripture, is 11 chapters of heavy doctrine, and then chapters 12 through 16 is practical application. Well, Ephesians is no different. And Ephesians was written from prison when Paul was in prison in Rome in AD 60 to 62. And it's one of four prison epistles or letters to the churches, along with um, Colossians and Philippians and Philemon. In fact, Colossians, as we know, Carlton's been jumping back and forth from Colossians to Ephesians, because Colossians is a parallel book to, to Ephesians in many ways. 
And in Ephesians is perfectly divided, theological, first three chapters, practical, last three chapters. So the first half of Ephesians is theological, doctrinal, teaching. Second half is practical, duty, or doing. Um, and the reason I'm giving you perhaps what is too broad an introduction this morning is because I want to get us thinking. I want us to be thinking as we go through these verses, how does what we know from the first three chapters of Ephesians relate to what we're about to see in this chapter six of Ephesians? In other words, in light of the first three chapters, how should we receive the last three chapters? In light, in light of our position in Christ in the first three chapters, which is like chosen, holy, blameless, predestined, adopted, redeemed, forgiven. In light of that, what should be our practice in Christ? In light of our beliefs in Christ in the first three chapters, that he loved us, made us alive from the dead, saved us by grace through faith. He is our peace and our cornerstone, who he is, what he's done for us. In light of that, what should be our behavior? So in light of beliefs, what's behavior? In light of position, what is practice? And notice that I've really got three uh, titles for my message. I just couldn't get it down to one. And a, a broader general subtitle, I would say, is how then should we live? In light of what we know about living in Christ. Ephesians is all about being in Christ. In light of that, how then should we live? In Christ, how should we live? And in way of review, notice how Ephesians builds to this point. After the doctrinal, in Ephesians 4, Paul begins with Christ's body, the bride, and teaches about the church, its power, its gifts, its victory. And then he moves to us as individuals and how that we're all new creatures in Christ or the new self, not the old man, but the new self. And then after teaching about the church and then individuals, in vertical relationship with Christ, then he moves to horizontal relationship with each other. And so from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 24, we have responsibilities in relationships that goes all the way to the verse today, which is Ephesians 6, verse 9. And I assume those are up there, that um, you can see how he's broken these down in categories. Wives to husbands, husbands to wives, children to parents, parents to children, slaves to masters, which Dave spoke on last week, and now masters to slaves. But here's the key. If you open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 5 and look at the verses just prior to this passage, just prior to this section on relationships, on horizontal relationships that we should have with others in light of being in Christ, notice how it works. Notice the purpose and the power behind how God intends for us to meet the responsibilities we have in relationship. As always, God always provides both the grace and the means to achieve his goals and intentions for us. He doesn't plan for us to do the impossible without us giving us what is impossible for us to do apart from his grace. And notice it's here in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. So start with me in Ephesians 5, 15. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, 
making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Here is God's will for us. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but one, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. And two, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. So we see the general call of God in dealing with relationships is a caution to be wise because the days are evil and don't be foolish, but understand what the will of God is for you. And let me just throw out a side note here. I love it when God tells us what his will is for us. I mean, I don't know about you, but I've struggled a lot in my life wondering what is the will of the Lord, particularly on things that are not clearly revealed. But isn't it wonderful that God clearly reveals some things in the word to be his will for us? <clears throat> and I personally think we'd do better if we focus more on what's clearly revealed in scripture and less on what we want to know, but not clearly revealed. And when we do, a side note again is I think we find that what's not clearly specified in scripture, like do we take this job, do we go here, do we don't do that, we find the answer by way of default. Because when we delight ourselves in the Lord, he gives us the desires of our heart. When we commit our ways to him and trust in him, then he will do it. That's Psalm 37 verses four and five. And what is, it he going, what is it that he's going to do? Our will. Not because our will supersedes him, but because our will has been sanctified by him and from him. So, but back to the passage. What is the will of God in our living in Christ as a new self? Notice he says two things. First, be filled with the Spirit. And that results in mutual and musical, by the way, mutual and musical worship, encouragement, and worship, and thanksgiving. Secondly, be subject to one another in the fear or awe of Christ. And now I don't have time to develop what this means, but the reason why I've got that comparative screen up there is because, again, if we go to the parallel passage in Colossians, Colossians 3, 16 and 17, I think we can understand what Paul is getting at or what the Spirit of God is getting at through Paul by just looking at the comparative wording. These are obviously exactly parallel passages. Notice Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. So we see in Colossians the comparison to the text in Ephesians. So Paul emphasizes in Ephesians being filled with the Spirit. Paul emphasizes in Colossians being what? Letting the word richly dwell within us. Paul emphasizes in Ephesians that we need to be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Paul emphasizes in Colossians right after the worship portion that we do everything in the name 
or the manner or the cause or devotion. That's what name means, in the name of Christ. So, with those two guiding principles in mind, let's see what God instructs us to do in our relationships with others. And notice that in the broad text, Ephesians 5, 22 through 6, 9, all these categories of relationships basically cover everything. Uh, he first deals with marriage, husbands and wives, then with family, parenting and children. And those two sets of relationships were created by God and ordained by God from the beginning. But then he also addresses other relationships that are man-made. And he moves to the one of slavery, the relationship between slaves and masters. And I submit to you that's to cover everything else. Because initially we might think, well, this text doesn't even apply to us. We don't live in slavery. Slavery's not even in this country. And thank God for that. But, and, and bear no uh, misunderstanding here. I don't want to mislead. There is a sense in which the critics are correct if we take this text and primarily apply it to employers and employees, that is not the primary application. In context, it's obvious that the primary application was by Paul to the people at Ephesus, Western Turkey, about slavery. It was two slaves, it was two masters. But I submit to you that secondarily, the application is to all other relationships we find ourselves in that are man-made apart from God's institutions. Why? If God can command us to live in this way, in the slavery relationship of, as a slave or as a master, what else doesn't it apply to? In such a severe and abusive and horrible system as slavery, if God is commanding us through Paul to live this way in Christ, and if these principles apply and work there, how much more so should they apply and work in our relationships of ease and comfort, of all the rights and responsibilities we have as free Americans? Should they not more apply? I mean, is it harder for us as free employees to obey these commands than it would be for a slave who's owned like a piece of property? Is it harder for us as employers who live in a great capitalistic system without the temptations of abuse and excess to obey these commands than it would be for a master who owns slaves? So my point is, by default, if God instructs them to, say, to do these things in that system, then how much more so should we not so adorn the gospel of Christ in our systems, in our relationships? And as I hope to show you as we move through this, all of you may be sitting there thinking, well, I don't even work. Like when you heard the passage on wives, you thought, well, I'm a man, I'm not a wife and vice versa, and then children and parents. But I submit to you that these verses apply to all of us. There are ways in which we are all in authority over somebody else at one point or another. There are ways, even as a consumer, you become the master. When you go buy a sandwich, you're the master. They're the servants. So what 
do the verses say? Let's read now in Ephesians 6, verse 5. I'll start with verse 5 because even though it's just verse 9, it refers back to these previous verses. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart with good will render service as to the Lord and not to men knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. Verse 9, And masters, do the same things to them, and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no partiality with him. So remember last week how Dave talked to us a little bit about the system of slavery that was prevalent in the world at this time first century when it was written. It was very widespread, very commonplace. In fact, some people estimate that as many as 60 million people in the Roman Empire were in slavery. And now remember, this is a time when the world's population is estimated to be between 100 and 300 million total. So as much as a third of the population on earth was in slavery. And Another thing we need to correct our thinking, unlike in antebellum America, slavery here was not a race-based system. It, uh, and which, by the way, the race-based system in America was even more unjust, more heretical, because people misused the scriptures to treat other people as unequal just because of race. But the slavery system here in the Greco-Roman system was more unjust and severe than that in the Hebrew system. The Hebrew system, like in Exodus 21, was a much more uh, tolerable system, if you will. It was voluntary. Um, in, in, after six years of service, it was indentured servitude for a maximum of six years. At the end of six years, the slaves were freed. It provided protection and provision for the slaves was intended to be um, uh, something that they could opt out of at the six years. And of course, if they loved their master and wanted to stay, they could you know, go to the doorpost, have the awl driven through their ear, and become a permanent slave. But Greco-Roman culture, first century, was different. Slaves were like chattel, like property. Um, that was the situation Paul was writing to. Some slaves were in good systems, some were in bad. Some masters were good, some were terrible. Some were terribly unjust. And we get a glimpse into it by some anecdotal evidence from historians, what they said about things at this time. Like, um, for example, if a, a slave fled and was a runaway, he would be branded on his forehead with an elf that stood for the Latin fugitus. Fugitive comes from that word. Um, Many were severely beaten. Many were severely abused. They were treated like property. Many were put in the arena for sport, as we know. And they were killed indiscriminately, like animals. They were treated like property, like animals. In fact, an extreme example is Caesar Augustus had a slave who accidentally killed his pet quail, so he crucified him. I mean, that's how severe and extreme the system was to which Paul wrote. 
So with such absolute power and control, masters would be very tempted to view their slaves as property, to view their slaves as less than human, to view their slaves as someone they could do anything they wanted to to, and they could command, command anything they wished out of them. But I want to submit to you that there is application for this sort of thinking to us today. Please don't misunderstand me, what I'm about to say. There are systems of slavery that we live with in this culture. I'm not trying to compare them by any way to the systems of horror and abuse and criminal nature that slavery has prospered in the world and in times past. But there is control, there are temptations. It may be more subtle, it may be more civilized, it may not be as physically oppressive, it may not be as punitive, but it can be more deceptive and more destructive spiritually. How? Because it is so subtle, it is so deceptive. Godless prosperity can be more spiritually destructive than godly poverty. Do any of us doubt that? Look at the countries behind the Iron Wall and how they've changed before and after liberation. Spiritually, all of us are enslaved to something. And spiritually, there's a sense in which we have authority over something or somebody. In, in some way, we're all slaves. In some way, we're all masters. It may be materialism and greed. It may be sex and lust. It may be food or drugs. It may be entertainment or sports. Or even more specifically, work or commerce or business. But nonetheless, there's systems that can become slavery. And again, one more time, I'm not saying this is the same as the system Paul wrote into. But again, if it applies to that system, how much more so should these principles not apply to ours in, in our ease and comfort? So the gospel of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ reenters the world in the first century into this kind of harsh system. And we know that many who came to Christ were slaves. In fact, perhaps most who came to Christ were slaves. We know from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that um, verse 26 says, Consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. So most probably were slaves. But some, as that verse implies too, not many, but some, some were slave masters. And they came to Christ. And when they came to Christ, they didn't cease becoming masters. They came to Christ and now they were redeemed. Now they were regenerated by the Spirit. But yet, how did they change as masters? So this letter is addressed to Christians, obviously. The world wouldn't pay attention to these rules. They would think them foolish and silly. But as masters, as Christian masters, they needed redemption. They needed sanctification. Warren Wiersbe said, The Christian faith does not bring about harmony by erasing social or cultural distinctions. Servants are still servants when they trust Christ. Masters are still masters. Rather, the Christian faith brings harmony by working the heart. Christ gives us a new motivation, not a new organization, 
both servant and master are serving the Lord and seeking to please him. And in this way, they are able to work together to the glory of God. And notice, just by way of default, what's not said to these Christian masters. They are not commanded to free their slaves. And now, what am I saying by that? I'm certainly not saying that God condones slavery. That's not the issue. But in Christ, what are they to do? Was it practical that slavery could be overthrown in one fell swoop? They were to live in such a way that slavery would naturally disappear. Because first, as Christianity spread through the Roman Empire, the effects, the evil of slavery went away with Christian masters. And then the system of slavery itself dissolved and disappeared. Now, that's not true in other parts of the world, but in the Roman Empire, that's what happened. It went away. So here are the questions for us to consider. What did the Spirit of Christ have to say to these believers who were masters over slaves? What principles do we see here to govern their responsibilities, actions, and attitudes toward others under their charge? And how do these apply to us today in much easier situations and much more natural and easier to obey relationships? So the next screen shows verse 9 and the parallel verse in Colossians 4, chapter 1. And let's just exegete what we see here in verse 9. First of all, it says, masters do the same things to them. So do what same things? The same things taught to the slaves in verses 5 through 8. So the masters were to act toward their servants in the same Christian manner that the servants were charged to act to their masters. The same commandment, the same attitude, the same compassion, the same devotion. We could say, They're charged, act by them as they are bound to act by you. Now, obviously, they don't don't mean exactly the same because the masters weren't to become slaves to their slaves, but they were to have the same principles, the same consideration that is exhibited in verses 5 through 8. And maybe looking at the parallel passage again in Colossians chapter 4, verse 1 helps. Notice what it says. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. The verb grant in verse 1 is like the verb do in verse 9 of Ephesians. It's a present imperative. These are commands. These are not suggestions. These are commands of the Lord God. And notice what they were to grant. They were to grant justice and fairness. The root word translated justice is usually translated in the New Testament righteousness or what is right. And that's what it means, what is right in the sight of God. Not what's right to us, but what is right to God. The root for fairness is usually translated equality or equal in other verses. So we could summarize this command as masters are to grant to their slaves what is right in the sight of God, and what is equal, a manner that is equal to the way that they should be treated as a brother in Christ, as image bearers of God, even if they're not believers, as fellow image bearers of God, they should be treated with equality, 
not with prejudice, not with punitive natures. So Christian masters should be the best master a slave could ask for. Um, in fact, again, I'll make a radical statement that I hope I'm not taking out of context on. But don't you think it would be better to be a slave to a Christian master who followed these principles than to be a free man to a godless employer who gave you all the rights in the world? I mean, think about it before you automatically answer. I know, I don't know anything about what it's like to be a slave. But these principles enacted destroy slavery. They destroy it and remove it um, and its effects. Um, so here's a summary. Three rules. Um, bring up the next screen. Three rules for application I see out of these verses. How do we summarize what God is teaching masters or anyone in authority over someone else to do? First of all is the golden rule. Um, Christ said in Matthew 7, verse 12, in everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, obviously, this is implied in the statement to the masters that says what? Do the same things to them. So by implication, the golden rule is implied here. And I tell you, if this applies to a master over a slave, how much more so should this apply to an employer over an employee, to a customer over a vendor, to anyone in a position of authority in a business deal? Should this not more so apply? I personally, just to be personal with you, I know I've messed up many times as a businessman. I've messed up many times as an employer. But I think the golden rule solves many problems. Many problems are solved if you treat people the way you would want to be treated if you were in their shoes. It solves so, it's a kindergarten simple rule. Our children know it, we don't. It answers many questions. And you are in, you may be sitting here thinking, I'm not in authority over anybody, but you are. If you ever buy anything, you're in authority. If you're ever in an organization where you're, you have people under you, you're in authority. If you're a supervisor, you're in authority. If you're an employer, you're in authority. If you're in the military, you're in authority. We are all in some ways in authority. Um, and I could get personal here and just confess that the golden rule is, although I think it's the most simple thing that's the easiest for me to apply, it's also the one I violate the most. And I don't do it as much when I'm face-to-face -face with my employees because that's harder to do when you're face-to-face -face with somebody. And it's also harder to do when they speak the same language as you do. And um, if they've got good Ohachi English, I understand them, they understand me. But when I'm dealing on the phone to a customer service center, and I know my family's over here amen in this, that I violate this rule when I'm talking to somebody in some foreign part of the world, I can't understand them, they don't understand me, and all they can do is spit out the training phrases that they've been told to say. I certainly have been guilty of not treating them in the way that I want to be treated. 
And that's just one of many examples of the way I fail to uh, enact the golden rule. And you may be sitting there thinking, well, this is just, these are good rules. Uh, this is not heart stuff. But this is critical. The glory of God is at stake. The gospel of Christ is at stake. The sanctification of our souls is at stake. The witness of us to others are at stake. You see what I'm saying? This is serious business, this, and, and uh, we must take it seriously. Second rule, positive rule. Notice further in verse 9, after it says, do to them same things, it says, give up threatening. All right, so here's a negative command that obviously implies if we're to not do something negative, threaten, we're supposed to do something positive. So giving up threatening means to quit threaten, threatening to punish. It implies uh, to throw your weight around is the original meaning of the word. Uh, come down heavy on people. Uh, threaten to abuse them, to take away something, to punish them in some way. Again, back to the system that was in place. If a Christian master was told in a system where slaves were regularly abused and punished, not only can you not punish them, you don't beat them, you don't punish them, you don't abuse them, you don't even threaten to do that. You see what a radical command this is? And so how much more does that apply to us? How do we motivate people? It's been proven that negative motivations don't work anyway. That only works when the boss is around, right? As soon as the boss leaves, those negative threats, they don't work. Positive motivation is otherwise known as what? Encouragement. Do we as leaders, as those in authority, do we encourage others? Do we bring them along in a positive spirit of motivation or negative threats? Third rule, reward rule. Notice at the end of verse 9 in Ephesians and at the end of verse 1 in Colossians, both, there's the reminder to the believers in authority, whether masters or slaves, that what? We have a common master, and we're easy in heaven. And he will judge without partiality. So what's that pointing to? The, the reward rule is pointing to the fact that we all face the same judge or the same reward. It's up to us. It's how we treat people in the spirit of Christ, in subjection to their needs, or selfishly in trying to fulfill our own needs. So we will stand before Christ the same. In effect, masters and slaves work for the same guy, right? We all serve Christ. Um, this is so critical to understanding, I think. Colossians chapter 3 adds further comment on it. It says, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Again, eternal perspective is critical. I'll tell you about a story that illustrates this perfectly. It was, there were these missionaries in Africa that served there for four decades. For 40 years, the Morrisons served in Africa, uh, taking the gospel to people 
uh, and they boarded a ship to come home. Their health was failing. They were old. They had no retirement. They had no means of income, but they were coming back to New York City on a ship. And this was when Teddy Roosevelt was president. He boarded the same ship. It was Henry Morrison, and I don't, I forget his wife's name. But there was a band. When they got to the ship, they noticed all the fanfare because Teddy Roosevelt was on their ship. And he'd been in Africa in a big game hunt. And so all this hoopla about the president, and they boarded the ship, of course, in uh, anonymity. No one knew who they were or paid any attention to them. And so on board ship, Henry got to pondering that and feeling sorry for himself, thinking, you know, we've given our lives for Christ in Africa. No one cares. No one was here to greet us. And yet, there's all this big fanfare because this guy came to Africa and killed some animals, and just because he's the president, he gets all the attention. Well, they talked about it, and then when they got to New York, same thing happened. Big fan, big band, of a lot of people celebrating Teddy coming home. They, of course, left without any fanfare. They got to their apartment, and he continued to feel sorry for himself, and his wife told him, you really need to pray to God about it. So he went in his room and prayed, and he came out with a totally different attitude, totally different disposition on his face. And she asked him, she said, what happened? She, he said, I talked to the Lord about it, and he told me, don't worry about it, because you're not home yet. So what, what is that saying? The eternal perspective is what matters. We've got an earthly perspective. And are there, life is not fair, is it? A lot of people are a lot richer than we are. A lot of people have a lot better looks than we do. A lot of people have a lot better everything than we do. A lot of people have more authority. A lot of people have better health. A lot of people have better families. A lot of people have whatever you want to name. But our perspective in all relationships should be where? Heaven, not here. And in fact, I think um, it helps us to apply these kind of these kinds of thoughts uh, to our own situations, whether they be organizations or companies or whatever. Um, we know Chick-fil-A is one company known for, for uh, imposing Christian principles in their business. And I confess I love Chick-fil-A. And why do we love Chick-fil-A? They get your order right? That's a, that's a shocker. You actually get what you ordered at Chick-fil-A. And it's well-prepared and it's fresh. Um, Debbie was out of town yesterday, so I had breakfast at Chick-fil-A. And everything they do is well done, in my opinion. Why is that? I know I'm embarrassing my family. That is because those Christian principles has, have pushed down excellence, right? They've pushed down service and the right attitudes. Um, I won't read you his five principles, but I've got some summary principles that I put up here on the screen that I developed um, just for Steve's benefit. They're doubly alliterated. Um, and notice the first one, perfect over pass. What I mean there, excellence is the standard. 
Acceptable is unacceptable. And this is really a big deal to me in America today. Everybody wants just to get by. You know, they want to say, well, what job can I do just to get by? Or if I've got a job to do, how can I do it where it's just okay? Okay, that, that's good enough. Perfect. Excellence is what we should pursue. Second, people over profit. This is one of Truett Cathy's principle in Chick-fil-A. When this is true, everybody profits. And it's so powerful when people see it in action. Number three, proven over pushed. What I'm talking about here is our Christian witness. A job well done to me is a much better testimony to the kingdom, a much better testimony to Christ and to his gospel, to the lost world, than for us to have a fish symbol on our ad. That's, I, I see so much of the name of Christ drugged down in commerce or in business or in employee-employer relationships because people want to thump and push their Christianity. Prove it. You know, that's the hard part, is prove it in the way you do business. Prove it in the way you treat people. Fourth, principle over practical or policy. Biblical values and principles overrule everything, even what works. You say, well, that won't work. That's okay, it's biblical. Follow it. You say, well, that's not the way we've done it. Follow it. It's biblical. Bottom line, Christian masters should remember we're serving Christ. We're not serving our slaves. We are in subjection to them, to anyone under our authority. We're in subjection to them, just as a husband should be in subjection to his wife, just as parents should be in subjection to their children. What does that mean? That doesn't mean they submit to them and obey. That means that they, they reach the needs. They meet the needs. Through Christ, they meet the needs of those under their care. What kind of workplace, what kind of commerce, what kind of business environment will we have if believers, forget about unbelievers, but just if those who claim the name of Christ would put these principles in practice? Here's another way to summarize. How are we to treat those under our authority? How are masters to treat slaves? I think it's answered by two other biblical questions. Biblically, it's answered by two other questions. And I've alluded to this all along. Number one, who is primary in the relationship? Not the slave, not the servant, not the employee, but who? Christ. Christ is primary in the relationship. We all serve him. That's who we serve. Number two, where is the primary focus of the relationship? As I've already mentioned, it's not here it's there. Our primary focus is that we are all moving toward what is real and eternal. What we're in now is temporary and fading. We're moving toward reality and eternal reward or judgment in heaven. So focusing on Christ and focusing on heaven helps us know implicitly how we should treat people. All right, now let's zoom back out. Next screen shows in all these relationships, everything, marriage, um, children, employees, employers, everything. 
all relationships, we see two principles, two obvious elements, if you will. There's always an authority structure in all relationships. Roles are different, but there's always an authority. Somebody is over somebody else. Without that structure, things don't function. There has to be structure. Even in the Godhead, there is structure, right? There certainly is no lack of equality between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But there is structure. There is authority. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Number two, there's always mutual subjection in all relationships. It doesn't matter how, you, how silly this may seem, but we're all in subjection to one another. This, is not, this does not remove the authority structure that I just mentioned. Even in the Godhead, we see subjection. Christ unto the Father. And again, that does not indicate any lack of equality. But it's the mindset he had in what? Philippians 2. And what does that say? Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus. That although he existed in the form of God, he didn't regard that equality, that equality something to be grasped and firmly held on to. But he gave it up that he might save us. And besides, notice what I've listed up there. All believing husbands are brides, aren't they? To who? Christ. All believing parents are children, right? To who? Christ. God's our father. And all believing masters are what? Slaves. To who? Christ. Um, there's a flow. And as the next screen shows, I see this flow of mutual service to Christ leads to mutual subjection to one another, which leads to mutual reward in Christ. I think if we think about that, everything gets simpler, easier. I, I may have made it complicated, but don't let me. This is this simple. Mutual service to Christ leads to mutual subjection. Mutual subjection leads to mutual reward in heaven, in Christ. John MacArthur in his most recent book, Slave, points out there are many metaphors for Christians in the New Testament, many. There's sheep, ambassadors, lights to the world, uh, salt to the earth, uh, aliens, strangers. You know, you, you substitute what you want. There are a lot of different metaphors. But you know what metaphor is used more than any other? Slave. Bond slave. So we are slaves. Masters, doesn't matter who you are. You know, President Obama should be a slave under Christ. We all should be slaves under Christ. That's what we're commanded to be. So back to the spirit-filled life perspective. Um, these questions to close. First of all, whose master are you? We all are in some way. In 1 Kings chapter 12, Rehoboam, y'all remember him? He was the grandson of David, the son of um, Solomon. And he was counseled about how to treat the people because they felt that they'd been mistreated by his father. And he asked the elders how to treat them. And they said to him, 1 Kings 12 verse 7, if you will be a servant to this people today 
and will serve them and grant them their petition and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. So what's the key to being a, a proper master or authority over anybody is servant leadership. Servant leadership. Number two, um, whose slave are you? We all are slaves to something, are slaves to someone. And it's either godless, or it's Satan, or it's our flesh, or it's Christ. And obviously, we need to examine our lives and see, are we slaves to Christ? Does that show in our relationships at home or at work? And as the next screen shows, only being filled by his spirit enables us to do that. Only having his word richly dwell within us, synonymous statements. Only those two ways can we serve him and be subject one to another. Then we're truly his slaves. Spirit-filled living followed by submission to Christ, followed by subjection to one another. I love this phrase, the heart of every problem is the problem of the heart, and only God's spirit and God's word can change or control the heart. Isn't that true? Only God's spirit and only God's word can change or control the heart. And the heart is always the root of the problem. So may God do that to our hearts. And then thirdly, last question, are we ready to be judged for both of our roles as slaves and as masters? Um, because we shall be, won't we? And that's really the focus I think we need to close with is that we all are masters in some way. We all are slaves in some way. We need to examine whose masters are we? Do we serve them as servant leaders the way that we should? Do we exhibit the principles that of the golden rule, the positive rule, the reward rule? And secondly, whose slave are we? Are we enslaved to something other than Christ? If we are, then the solution is be filled with the Spirit. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you, that we may truly be a slave unto him, and that in being a slave unto him, we may truly be in subjection one to another. Then we'll be ready for the judgment. Um, and ready for the hope that he's given us. So, let's pray.